And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Friday, September 22nd, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian, our digital editors Daisy Thornton and Darris Lauderdale. Coming up this hour of The Federal Drive, how bad would a government shutdown really be? I mean, really? Plus, a former president's library has a new archivist. We'll meet her. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, you can find 45 different cyber incident reporting requirements, count them, in place across the federal government. And there's more on the way. The Department of Homeland Security does say, though, agencies can do a few things to streamline all of it. For more, Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. All right, so DHS, of course, is behind a lot of these rules in the first place, but that notwithstanding, what are they recommending here and to make sense for people that have to do the reporting? Well, DHS is saying agencies could do things like adopt a common definition of what a reportable cyber incident actually is. They could also adopt a common form that these organizations who have to comply with these rules could use to report cyber incidents. And then agencies could work to kind of standardize the timelines that these different organizations have to report cyber incidents on, uh, depending on whether it's a data breach that could take a little bit more time versus an issue of national security, which should be reported pretty quickly. That's all in a report DHS issued earlier this week called the Harmonization of Cyber Incident Reporting to the Federal Government. This was a pretty highly anticipated document in the cyber world because there's just these growing body of cyber incident reporting rules that have to do with data breaches, health security, national security. And uh, as we mentioned at the top, there's more on the way with uh, the CISA rule that's coming out shortly uh, that's going to affect all critical infrastructure sectors. Lawmakers are also growing a little bit concerned that there's a lot of overlap here. So this DHS report really kind of shows some some areas where they could make some progress. And DHS is basically recommending this to the government for dealing with industry, which is the one that has all of these requirements. That's right. It's it's across all, a lot of different government agencies. The, this report actually stemmed from uh, something called the Cyber Incident Reporting Council. It's a new body that DHS helps lead, but there's 33 federal agencies and entities on there in total, ranging from the SEC to the FCC to the Department of Treasury to the FBI, all of these different entities that have something to do with cyber incident reporting, they're on it. And are there any high-profile rules that could be a model that maybe people could line up behind? Well, one that everyone's kind of paying attention to right now is the Securities and Exchange Commission uh, came out with a a rule for public companies earlier this year that would require them to do things like report cyber incidents as part of their public disclosures within uh, four days of discovering the incident. So that's a very stark example of a a cyber incident reporting requirement that is uh, it's got a lot of people ginned up actually. Uh, House Homeland Security lawmakers actually wrote the SEC telling them to kind of back off on this rule and wait for CISA to come out with its big cyber incident reporting rule next year. So there's a lot in flux here at the moment. Let's talk about that CISA, the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency forthcoming rule. What do we know about it? What is it aimed at? What are its goals? And do we know anything? that will be in it specifically yet. Well, that's what's interesting about this report is that it might tip the cap a little bit to what CISA is going to come out with a rulemaking here uh, either later this year or early next year. So the CISA rule will require critical infrastructure companies to report cyber incidents 
to CISA within 72 hours of discovering them. And that's a big deal. It's one of the most sweeping cybersecurity requirements will be to ever hit the private sector. As I said, the rulemaking is not yet out. And, you know, it's hard to say with what's going to be in a regulation. But this is a DHS report. CISA is a part of DHS. I talked to some folks who said it'd be a little hard to uh, see CISA coming out with something totally different than what's in this DHS report. For instance, there's a common form that I mentioned that DHS proposes here. CISA has been working on a form that we know of as part of this rulemaking. Michael Daniel, president and chief executive officer of the Cyber Threat Alliance, former National Security Council official, he said this form is actually a pretty big deal because it actually shows what the government might be asking for as part of the CISA rule. It's very easy to talk about these things in the abstract. And when you actually start coming up with a reporting form, that really makes it much more concrete, right? It makes it much more real, and you can really start to tease out where the issues and problems might actually emerge. And so I think it's really exciting that they took the time and put in the effort to generate that kind of standardized format. And of course, there are different rules for public traded companies like the SEC. That's all they deal with. But there's lots of private companies that deal with the government that have classified and maybe sensitive but unclassified information and all of this. So it divides among public or private different rules. Does it also go different from sector to sector? Because DHS only oversees certain parts of critical infrastructure. Other agencies, other departments oversee other parts of critical infrastructure across industry. Yeah, that's right. What really came out in this report is that different sectors are in different kind of stages of maturity, if you will, in dealing with incident reporting requirements. So the financial services sector, for instance, is subject to eight different incident reporting requirements, depending on whether it's a data breach or something else, if you're a really important firm, financial services firm. And that seems like it could be pretty confusing. But what came out of this report is that the financial services sector actually has a lot of structure in place to coordinate different reporting mechanisms and to minimize the regulatory overlap. Then there's other sectors like the gas, oil, and pipeline sectors who have only recently started to have to report cyber incidents to the government because of the colonial pipeline incident that happened a couple years ago. And then still more, there's other sectors who right now aren't subject to any incident reporting rules. Water and wastewater sector, there's tens of thousands of organizations within that sector. Right now, they don't have to report cyber incidents to the government. But as we've been talking about, the CISA rule will apply to all critical infrastructure. And so it will be interesting to see how these different sectors deal with that when it comes out. Well, it's a good thing the wastewater and sewage water pipes don't cross or share any common infrastructure with freshwater. Imagine a hack that could send sewers right up to people's faucets then you would really have a public outcry over Absolutely. cybersecurity. All right, so DHS is trying to harmonize all of this. What will we expect next? When are they going to get on with it? DHS says it's going to work through that incident reporting council that I, I spoke about earlier with all these different agencies to start to implement some of these recommendations. It'll it'll be interesting because as we've talked about, as you've talked about, DHS is responsible for some of these rules. There's the CISA rule. There's the TSA rules for pipelines Uh, they can pretty easily say, okay, guys, we're going to get on board with these different recommendations. But then you've got these independent agencies like the SEC and the FTC who are, you know, independent by nature. They aren't as answerable to, you know, the White House and, and things like that. So will they adopt these recommendations? That still remains to be seen, even though they are on the council. 
who helped uh, generate them. And then Congress, uh, you know, the report talks about how there could be some legislative language that fixes some of these these issues, like providing authority and funding that allows agencies to actually share incident reporting data. That could be a big fix that we could see from Congress if someone is willing to pick that up. But that's one thing the DHS report is recommending here. Yeah, there is the issue of the need for uniformity so that industry doesn't go crazy with cost for implementing all of these different reporting. But then you do have some sectors and some industries and maybe some agencies that have, I guess you could argue, unique requirements for reporting. So it's a matter of striking the balance. You can't have the FTC coming up with a whole new regime that's completely out of sync with what DHS is asking, for example. And I wanted to know also, what about DOD and CMMC and some of the requirements? reporting requirements coming out of the Defense Department. Is that part of the harmonizing, or could that be a voluntary part of the harmonizing? Well, actually, DOD does have reporting requirements in place for defense contractors, for cleared defense contractors, at least. When an incident hits their networks, they're required to report to the Defense Department. And they are a part of this Incident Reporting Council, so they have signed on, at least notionally, to these recommendations. There are a lot of other government contractors who are you know, have to report cyber incidents to the government, to the GSA, for instance, as well, too. So that that's definitely an element of this. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Thanks so much. You got it, Tom. And be sure to check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still ahead, a former president's library now has a new archivist. She wasn't born when he was in office. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. It's hard to believe that Richard Nixon left office nearly 50 years ago. Some of us still see that image of a waving Nixon boarding the helicopter after resigning from office. Now the Richard Nixon Presidential Library and Museum in Yorba Linda, California, has a new director. Tamara Martin joins me now. Ms. Martin, good to have you with us. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here today. And we should point out that in joining the National Archives and Records Administration, you are also joining the federal government, as it were, from the California state government, where you were the archivist there. Tell us what attracted you to this particular position, because sounds like the archivist for California is a pretty big job. It was. It was a tremendous opportunity to serve as the California state archivist, but I am excited to be here at the Nixon Library as a part of the National Archives. I've loved history ever since I was a child. I grew up going to museums, and so the idea of having the opportunity to work for the National Archives is kind of like a dream come true. All right. Well, we're glad to have you. And tell us what happens at the library in terms of what an archivist would do now, because I would think everything connected to the Nixon administration and the Nixon really an amazingly long political life would be all gathered in there already. So we have a wonderful collection here. Uh, There's approximately 46 million pages of documents, 3,700 hours of recorded presidential conversations, which are also known as the White House tapes. Yes, the infamous Dictabelt tapes, right? That's correct, yes. And they're all in the process or have already been digitized. So that's quite exciting for broader public access. We also have still photographs here. We have several hundred thousand of those, as well as additional audio recordings and over 42,000 state and public gifts. And so our archival team here, they work directly with the records to process and provide access to them. And then they also assist our in-person and our virtual researchers here as well. Do new things ever turn up related that belong in the Nixon Library and come to you? 
There are at times some things that do come in as uh, perhaps private donations. So people who might have things relating to President Nixon or um, perhaps that are former administration officials who have things to add to the collection. But for the most part, most of the objects are already here, part of the collection. Sure. And what happens day to day then? Uh, what do you do as as director? There's a lot of visitors that come too every year. So each year we have thousands of visitors who come here. Uh, we have a nine acre campus here that we share with the Richard Nixon Foundation. And so if you were to come to our beautiful library, you would come into the lobby and you have a chance to tour the museum, which includes our permanent gallery, which showcases and provides information about the life of Richard Nixon as well as our temporary exhibit gallery, which currently has an exhibit called Captured Shot Down in Vietnam, which focuses on the stories of brave Americans who endured the harsh realities of being a prisoner of war during Vietnam. We also have the birthplace here, so where Richard Nixon was born, that you can visit, as well as the Marine One helicopter that he used on his final day in office. Um, so day-to-day, we welcome guests here and invite them to learn more about our 37th president. We also work closely with other presidential libraries, as well as other universities and colleges and educational institutions to provide programming and provide broader access to the collection for the general public. I was going to say there's a couple of presidential libraries in California. There's the Ronald Reagan, but then That's the rest correct. of them are all over the country. Talk about how they interact, the various museums and what kinds of practices you share. There are 15 presidential libraries across the United States, and so we work together collaboratively on different initiatives throughout the National Archives, such as our Civics for All of Us initiative, which is educational uh, materials provided for K-12 through students, as well as adult learners about civic education and how that relates to the records of the National Archives. We also collaborate on things that our presidents might have both worked on or that might have occurred around the same time period that our presidents were in office. And then I would say that the presidential libraries are also a wonderful network of collaboration between the different teams. So you have a a wide net of resources to be able to rely upon if you have questions. We're speaking with Tamara Martin. She is the newly appointed director of the Richard Nixon Presidential Library. That's part of the National Archives and Records Administration. And just personally, you said you have an interest in history. What have you learned perhaps about Richard Nixon that you might not have known when you got there and your general reaction to what you found out about old Dick Nixon? So I see every day as an opportunity to learn and grow. And so it was really important to me when I started here that I was able to learn as much as I could about President Nixon as quickly as I could. So to help with that, I've been doing a lot of reading. I read a book about President Nixon every other week or so. Over the summer, I've read nine different books, including President Nixon's Six Crises and Julie Eisenhower's Pat Nixon, The Untold Story. And so many people do know that President Nixon opened relations with China. He ended U.S. involvement in Vietnam. There was the Apollo 11 moon landing and the space program and, of course, Watergate. But many people may not know, and it was new information for me, but I was interested to learn that he was also involved with creating the Environmental Protection Agency in 1970, the Clean Water Act in 1972. He also worked on Title IX Education Amendments of 1972 and the All-Volunteer in 1973. He was also involved in the desegregation of Southern schools. He ended the draft. He worked on the war on cancer and was 
president during the 26th Amendment, which was passed in 1971 that lowered the voting age to 18. So it's quite an extensive legacy and a lot of different things that he worked on across all different areas that really have a a tremendous impact on things that we do today. Yes, it was a period of amazing ferment. I had a draft number when it ended. So I recall, oh, thank you, President Nixon or, you know, the Congress. I mean, the whole thing changed so dramatically. We still, in some ways, haven't figured out the best way to manage an all-volunteer force. And we have an amazing force as it is. Do you get visitors or queries from the remaining members of the Nixon dynasty, the family? So we we do work very closely with our foundation who works very closely with the family. And it's a tremendous honor to be able to work with them and to have them involved. It's been a great thing. And It's said that at the wedding of his daughter, Richard Nixon introduced himself to a guest as General Eisenhower's grandson's father-in-law. So he did have that (laughs) self-deprecating side to himself. I guess a final question is, you mentioned you read a book almost every other week about Richard Nixon. You've read nine so far. What is the interest uh, from scholars that you get? Are there still body of scholars that come out there and maybe want to see some of the original documents, some of the obscure letters and so forth that are still doing? I mean, it's like Lincoln. There's a new book on Lincoln every year. I think there's more books on Lincoln than just about anybody. But what about Nixon? So we do have a, a fairly busy research room. We have scholars that come from all over the world to do research with us. And we work very hard to process records and open them as quickly as possible for the public to view. Recently, we opened two new collections that focused on White House advance files as well as the office files of Donald Rumsfeld. And recently, we also had 112 boxes of previously classified materials that opened up that are now available for research that cover a whole host of foreign and domestic policy related items. So as things become available, there are always new things to research and learn. So there's always information available for authors or scholars or visitors to come in and learn things they might not have known before. Yeah, as the declassification schedules come around, then you get more of these records coming in. And they're all paper, too, aren't they? I mean, there's no, there were computers back in 19, late 1960s and 1970s, but I doubt there was much computerization of any White House records at that time. Our recent releases have been paper. Um, the uh, other types of formats we do have are the audiovisual, so the photographs and the video and the audio recordings, but there were not electronic records like we see today. Well, you've got a fascinating job. Tamara Martin is director of the Richard Nixon Presidential Library and Museum, part of the National Archives and Records Administration. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you for the opportunity, and I hope you have a great day. We'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, if you want new culture in your agency, try yogurt. But first, how bad would a government shutdown really be? I mean, really. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. There are lots of reasons why it's bad when politicians fail to appropriate money to keep the government going at the end of a fiscal year. This year, shutdown brinksmanship is sharper than ever. So what is so bad if the government shuts down for a few days or a month? Well, we get a list of reasons from the vice president of research for the Peter G. Peterson Foundation, Jeff Holland. Mr. Holland, good to have you with us. Nice to be here. Thank you, Tom. And let's go through your list because the very first item on the list is that it is costly to the government 
which is a little counterintuitive when nothing's operating, the money's not flowing out. How can it be costly for the government? Yeah, so you might think that actually saves money, but there are a number of things that are costly. One is just the lost in work output. There are people who won't be working during that time, and they will eventually get paid. So that's just work that's not getting done. The second thing is the contingency plans that agencies have to implement in the face of a continuing resolution or a shutdown cost money. So it means that people are spending time figuring out what those contingency plans are rather than working on other things. It's also possible that contractors could include premiums to cover the risk of delayed payment. So things like that could also be happening. It could be costly. OMB estimated that the cost of lost productivity in the 2013 shutdown was around $2 billion. Subsequently, the Senate Permanent Committee Subcommittee sorry, on Investigations found that the previous three shutdowns had cost at least $4 billion. And that didn't even include the cost to DOD and some other agencies who could not fully report. So there are definitely costs involved with shutting down the government. And as you point out, eventually the back pay does flow. So you're paying for work that essentially did not take place, not through the fault of the federal employees, but simply for the fact that they could not work. They're proscribed from working unless they're the accepted employees. But people in policy, procurement, budget planning, all of those things cannot work. In fact, they're not even allowed to access email at home. That's right, but they will eventually get paid. The Government Employee Fair Treatment Act of 2019 provides for retroactive pay, so um, they will get paid even if they're not allowed to come into the office for a period. All right, and then you are also stating that the government shutdowns can be bad for the economy. We've got a pretty big economy, and so, you know, a few hundred thousand people laid off for a couple days. Is it really that costly? So it's not necessarily that costly, but there is some effect, especially if the shutdown goes on for a while. There have been various estimates of this by uh, analysts. In 2013, the Bureau of Economic Analysis calculated that the shutdown reduced GDP in the fourth quarter by three tenths of a percentage point. S&P Global had done a similar estimate in 2017. They estimated that reduced GDP by around $6.5 billion a week. CBO came up with an estimate that the partial government shutdown in 2018 reduced real GDP by $11 billion, although most of that was recovered. So again, you know, we have a $25 trillion economy. These are relatively small numbers, but they're unnecessary ones. You know, the shutdown just does have some effect. And this isn't on your list, but there is this effect. And, you know, the founder of the foundation, you know, was someone that knew pretty much how government works and maybe how it should work, is the perception, you know, around the world, I wonder, what people think of a government that is such a long, stable, democratic type of operation, maybe the longest in history, works on this manner. There must be some international non-quantifiable effect. People are saying, what the heck is wrong with those people? Yeah, I've worked abroad before, and it's hard to explain how the federal government could shut down. This doesn't happen in other countries. I mean, parliamentary democracies, even if lack of a budget causes them to default, the government operations still continue. So, yeah, it's an anomaly for sure. We're speaking with Jeff Holland. He's vice president of research for the Peter G. Peterson Foundation, which I guess it's fair to say is in favor of fiscal restraint and returning to some kind of a semblance of less deficits and less debt accumulation. Fair way to put it? Um, Yeah, we use the term fiscal responsibility. So, We're concerned about the trajectory of the debt. We're certainly concerned, which ties a little bit into what we're talking about here in terms of operating under normal order and things like that. 
the trajectory of the debt by all estimates is upward and rising quickly. And uh, yeah, that concerns us for the future of upcoming generations. All right. So getting back to your list of, you know, the costs of a government shutdown, and there is the shutdown itself, which is an interruption of federal programs and services. Although it seems like in recent years, more and more of the government operations have been accepted so that they do keep on going and the public feels it less than maybe the shutdowns of the Clinton era. Yeah, you know, the the shutdown affects appro- essentially affects appropriations only, so which we often call discretionary spending. That type of spending in 2022 uh, accounted for about a little over a quarter of the budget. So the shutdown doesn't affect programs that are governed by permanent law, so it doesn't affect Social Security benefits. It doesn't affect Medicare payments. It doesn't affect most income security programs, veterans programs, and other elements of, of federal activities that are mandatory, that are governed by permanent law. Appropriations do affect a lot of the daily operations of the federal government. Things like scientific research, uh, safety inspections, the park service, some transportation activities, passport services, citizenship, things like that. It could affect programs like the Supplementary Nutrition Assistance Program if it goes on too long. That's a mandatory program, but usually the authorization for benefits is done like every 30 days or so. So disruptions will occur even if a lot of elements of federal government activities will continue to be carried out. And by the way, another aside question about you personally having spent a quarter of a century at the Congressional Budget Office where you were churning out all of those reports that I wish more people would read because they're really good. And if you want to know what's really going on, you know, read the CBO. I quote it to people at cocktail parties all the time and their eyes glaze (laughs) over. They dig into their olives. But how did it look, brinkmanship in this horrible lack of regular order year after year after year, now generation after generation? How did it look from the poor people inside the CBO who are just the drones of Congress that officially have no political stake in the game? <laughs> yeah, well, you know, CBOs there served the Congress. Um, it, during the shutdown of 1995-96, many CBO employees were declared essential because they were supporting the Congress and helping get through the shutdown period. So, you know, CBO people have to do their jobs and getting the government up and running, getting appropriations passed is something that, you know, they pay play an integral role in in terms of scoring the appropriations and things like that. So it's just another element of the work there. But thanks for the shout out for uh, CBO's work. Um, I mean, I'm not there anymore, but appreciate that kind of shout out. And I guess it must feel good in the old days. They called them essential employees versus non-essential. I think now the word is accepted activity or something. So, uh, Yeah, sorry. Old-fashioned. Still using some of the old terminology. Um, it is a misnomer, but yeah, people had to come to work. <laughs> but it must be cool to say, hey, well, you stay home if your neighbors are fed. And I'm essential, so I'm heading in, and you can stay home and play Pinochle. <laughs> Perhaps. Uh, I think the main thing that most people at CBO want is just, you know, a smooth functioning of the government sure. and some uh, good, All right. good, good economic policy. And getting back to your list, number four, I guess, is government shutdowns may harm the federal workforce. And that's a real concern because people generally have a favorable idea of public service, of being a civil servant. The situation can kind of get frustrating for employees. Yeah, I mean, there's certainly a human element to this um, in, in terms of people's job security or their ability to make the payments and so on. Um, 
Yeah, the last shutdown, around 800,000 workers were furloughed or went without pay for a period. You know, so it's a lot of people. And, you know, even if you look at the population in general, a survey by the Fed, I think, found that among all U.S. workers, around 40% were unable to pay an emergency expense of $400 or more. You know, so, I mean, to the extent that that's affecting some of these 800,000 people, that, you know, that's a real concern. You also wonder if it might harm retention and recruitment in the federal government. Being shut down, being excluded from your job for a while may alter the perception of federal jobs. It might reduce the attractiveness of such jobs for younger workers. And they're already underrepresented in the federal workforce. Right now, just about 7% of permanent full-time employees in the federal government are under the age of 30, even though within the broader labor market, they account for 20%. So you don't want to dissuade your potential workforce from coming to work for you. And increasingly, it must look difficult because the arguments over the budget are, yes, the dollar levels for different programs, but you're only talking about a quarter of the spending anyway, and then it gets down to $10 billion plus or minus out of $1.3 or $4 trillion. So the budgetary matters are there, but more important and more intractable, it seems, are the philosophical and policy types or social issue types of issues that are getting pulled into the budget debate. That must make it look tougher and tougher for you. Well, yeah, I mean, I think in terms of getting to a political resolution, there's it becomes harder when other elements become added to it. I mean, I think the gap in dollars right now seems to be larger, like tens of billions or $100 billion or so. But yeah, when you layer on some other riders and so it can become more difficult. I'm a terrible political prognosticator. Well, you can take the boy out of CBO, but uh, you can't take the CBO out of the boy. And I guess a final question would be, what about the Infrastructure Money, CHIPS Act Money, Inflation Reduction Act Money? There was a few trillion thrown around there, and a lot of that money is still left over. I wonder to what extent agencies could repurpose some of that money, which is not part of these appropriations talks, but it's there for operations. Well, but it's there, but it's designated, right? A lot of that money is mandatory in nature, again, so the, the law says what you can use it for. Um, yeah, moving money around within the federal government usually involves some sort of legislative action as well. So while lawmakers might be tempted to move it, rescind it, change it in some way, that requires legislation. And that, you know, that we're in that situation now where the legislation is, is already difficult to achieve. What, one other issue that we always sort of touched on when we were talking about governance you know, Fitch ratings recently downgraded the U.S. credit rating. And one of the issues they cited was governance. In fact, particularly erosion of governance as a rationale for that downgrade. You know, and I think that the shutdown in some sense might contribute to that sort of perception and to the extent that it has some sort of long lasting effect or some sort of future effect on credit ratings. You know, that may make it difficult for us to borrow. It might lead to higher rates on the U.S. debt and so on. Interest is something we have to continue paying. Also, that will be continued to be paid, you know, during the shutdown. Um, but the higher the interest rates go, the more expensive that is and so on. So anything that affects that, even if it's tangentially, um, it, you know, is also a concern. Well, I guess if you can have a hoodie on the Senate floor, then governance can't be far behind. <laughs> Interesting connection, but uh, yeah, perhaps. All right. Jeff Holland is vice president of research for the Peter G. Peterson Foundation. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks, Tom. We'll post this interview along with a link to his report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to The Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, if you want new culture in your agency, try yogurt. 
This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. That drive for economy and efficiency in government operations never ceases, especially when operational budgets don't grow like entitlements or grants budgets. So it's up to leadership to foster a culture of ever better productivity. Most don't do such a great job, says who? My next guest, longtime federal leadership professor, coach, and general smart guy, Bob Tobias. Bob, good to have you back. Thank you, Tom. And this idea of culture change so that we can do more with less, this seems to preoccupy federal managers, federal purported leaders a lot. And you've got some thoughts on that. I do, Tom. Thanks. I'm hearing more and more agency leaders who are saying we're going to initiate a culture change to increase agency productivity. And they're saying that because it looks over the next few years that budgets are not going to keep going up. They're going to flatten out and maybe even decline. But what these leaders don't say, but I think often believe They say, well, I'm very productive, and if everybody else would change their behavior to be as productive as me, things would be great around here. And those of us in long-term relationships often think if our partner would change, everything would be great around here. And we find out quickly that blaming the other is never a path to effective problem solving. And the same is true, I believe, in the workplace. So if leaders are unwilling to change their behavior and model the behavior that they seek, I think organization change is extremely unlikely. Well, culture is a hard thing to get at. You hear people in every conference and every panel discussion say, well, it's a matter of culture. You know, we have the technology, we have the this, we have the that. We need to change culture. And I'm not sure exactly what culture is. I guess it's the sum of people's expectations for behavior towards one another, towards how they work and so on. How can you change culture? What should a leader model, say, for the idea of getting more productivity, for example? Well, the normal approach to increasing productivity is for a leader to hold an all-hands meeting identify the uh, need for more productivity, create the burning platform, appoint a group of high-level officials to study the problem. And of course, they select a consultant who introduces them to steps they must follow to increase productivity. And then at another all-hands meeting six months or eight months later, new goals are created. And there is little or no discussion about the behavior that would need to change to achieve those goals. So many leaders at that point think they've done their work, and I suggest that's where they need to start. And as you suggest, organizational culture means the sum total of the behavior everybody exhibits toward each other in the organization. And if the organization needs to change, I think it has to start at the top Not me as a leader saying, I'm perfect and all you change and we'll be great. And we also know, Tom, that as adults, we don't like to change our culture. And all we have to do is see the TV ads of the smokers sucking oxygen saying, don't be like me. And yet people continue to smoke, even though we see that horror on the TV. 
So we get comfortable with how we behave and we don't want to change. We're speaking with Bob Tobias. He's a former federal union president and retired American University professor of federal executive leadership. Well, let's put this into the context of, say, the return to the office gambit that has been going on. And the administration, some members of Congress, want more federal employees in their offices more of the time. Yet the leadership, for the most part, the managerial class in federal agencies, they are going to the office. And there's this reluctance of maybe the rank and file because they feel they are productive being teleworkers. And so there you have modeling of the behavior that's wanted. I'm going to the office, yet people are pushing back. How do you address that one? Well, I think that the rationale for asking people to come back to the office doesn't exist because agencies have shown over time, particularly during COVID, but post-COVID, that productivity remains level and or is increasing. So if I'm the leader and I'm at work and I say, you ought to come back to increase productivity, nonsense, show me the numbers. So I think that's where modeling the behavior you seek without a convincing rationale is where the uh, rub is. In other words, I could model the behavior of walking across hot coals and <laughs> expecting people to follow me there, but there's never a really good rationale for walking across hot coals. Show me the boots before I walk across the hot coals. No. <laughs> and getting back to the productivity question, I mean, you can measure that in a lot of ways. In you know contracting, for example, well, how many contracts did you do? But maybe there needs to be on the part of management a deeper look at really the metrics and what's important because often if you need more output, more metric changes in this area, maybe you could just abandon some of the stuff that has been done by habit for so many years. We do that because we do that. And people could buy into the new metric if some stuff was heaved overboard that's burdening them. Well, that's true. So in the arena of productivity, really what's needed is behavior change in how people relate to each other, how inclusive they are, how collaborative they are, how well they listen to each other. Now, those are all habits of a culture. And if the leader doesn't change her or his behavior to exhibit those kinds of behaviors, it won't happen. So if they don't say, this is really the kind of behavior and behave collaboratively, no one is going to do the changed behavior work necessary to increase productivity. Can you think of a time that you saw that work in a positive way? Uh, yeah, many times I saw it work in a positive way. When I was president of NTEU, particularly during the Clinton years when there was a lot of support for including employees as part of the problem-solving process. And it's occurred sporadically ever since but never to the extent where it could really be energizing and having a dramatic impact on increases in productivity. Because the people who do the work know what the problems are. And when you include them and they say, well, I have a stake in this process now because it's my idea that's being implemented. When that happens, Tom, productivity increases. Bob Tobias is a former federal union president, as he said, and retired American University professor of federal executive leadership. As always, thanks so much. Thank you, Tom. 
and we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Take your Federal Drive with you on your journey. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Over the last 18 months, the General Services Administration has been asking some hard questions, mostly about itself. What does the Federal Acquisition Service need to look like? Does the current regional structure still make sense? A group of managers and line employees delved into this and a host of other questions in an attempt to design the future of FAS. For how the revamped Federal Acquisition Service is shaping up, Federal News Network's Jason Miller spoke to its commissioner, Sonny Hashmi. A lot of those traditional ways of delivering uh, service you know, are changing. And so as we looked at the work that we do and how we're organized, we discovered that a lot of the customers that, uh, that we work with are expecting a different service model. They're expecting us to work with them in a one-on-one capacity. They, they, they expect us to understand their mission very deeply. And they, they want to work with teams that, uh, that they're comfortable with and they, they know. And those teams need to have a deeper understanding of their mission. So all those things coming together, we also recognize that the talent as we move forward that we're going to need and the expertise they're going to need is located all over the country in all jurisdictions and all uh, locations across the country. And so we asked ourselves, how do we organize ourselves for the future that takes advantage of this amazing talent pool across the country that we can tap into, but at the same time align ourselves more more closely to how our customers are organized. And uh, with that in mind, we took on a fairly long process, uh, including the voices of many people at all levels of the organization, and in a bottom-up approach, rethought how the future organization uh, structure could look like. And that's led to today, which uh, I'm very excited to share that in, uh, just in a few weeks' time, we're going to be transitioning into a new organizational structure where uh, major organizations within FAS, including AAS and CASE, are going to be aligned to customer segments. So now we're going to have teams that are fully aligned to a customer's mission. That team and the customer working closely together are going to be purely focused on achieving mission outcomes that that customer cares about. And I'm confident that over time this is going to uh, lead to better service delivery and access to talent and opportunities within the organization for people who are looking for uh, the next, uh, next step in their careers. One of the reasons why this probably developed the way it did is because – the Army has bases in Huntsville, Alabama, and then they have bases in, you know, you pick at Seattle, Washington, and then they have bases in Hawaii, and then they have bases in Europe. And you need different people in different time zones to serve that. Is that still going to be the case? I want to make it very clear, and uh, this has been some level of, uh, you know, these questions come up. We are not going to change where our folks are located. We're a global organization. We have folks all over the world, and they, those folks will remain in those theaters to support our customers. And in fact, being next to our customer, being close to their mission, is actually one of the driving factors for us to do this change. And so we're going to continue to have these teams located worldwide, very close to where the mission is, is being executed, including the United States. We're going to have team members all over the country. This in no way means that these teams will have to come together physically and be co-located in one location. And by having this distributed model, we're going to be able to provide not just around-the-clock support, but also support uh, from different parts of the country where we may have different expertise. As an example, we're seeing a lot of uh, you know, different uh, colleges and universities that are, ex- that, are, that are developing expertise in different areas. By having uh, the ability to recruit this talent where they are, we're going to be able to tap into this talent pool and have a, geographic, a geographically diverse footprint. Give me a sense of what this will potentially look like. You'll have the Army team, and the Army team will be made up of 
Mary, who's in Seattle, and John, who's in D.C., and, and Ken, who's in Alabama. But they'll all be working for, for instance, Sonny, who is the head of the Army team. I mean, I, again, I'm making this up. Yeah, that's, that's, that's quite right. And in fact, what's important to note is that that is, in a lot of ways, how work gets done today. The, our folks are not all located in the same office. There are folks who are distributed uh, all over the country. They come together for specific projects or initiatives, and they support a particular customer's need when it arises. Historically, those teams uh, reported into different executives who ultimately reported differently up into the chain of command, and therefore added unnecessary friction and, uh, and confusion. Um, and, and sometimes, you know, uh, uh, even executives had to negotiate with each other in terms of capacity in their teams and availability of talent. And so by bringing these teams together under one leadership in a national sense, we can reduce some of that friction and, uh, and, and unnecessary burden and uh, let the teams do the best work that they do in service with the customer. Look, my philosophy from the very beginning uh, and has been, and this is no surprise to anyone, is that ultimately the entirety of the reason why FAS exists and the key mission that we fulfill is to add value to our customer's mission. If you're not aligned to our customers the way they want to operate, then we're unnecessarily adding burden to them on how they do business with us. There were instances in the past where our customers had to shop around a need between different regions and have to understand the organizational chart uh, of FAS before they can get the service they need. And to me, that's unacceptable. Why should a customer have to understand how we're internally organized to be able to get the job, the service they need? They should have one point of contact they need to be able to reach out to, and that person, that team, should be able to provide bring together the right expertise from across the organization in service with that customer. And so this new model is going to allow us to do just that. You have 111 agencies or some such. Maybe they're not all customers of GSA, but many are. Uh, You can't have 111 teams, I imagine. So walk me through what the org chart, for lack of a better word. I've got a lot of questions. Have you seen the org chart yet, Jason? No, not yet. Can you talk me, walk me through what that org chart will look like in some ways? Even, I know it's still early and you're still maybe putting pieces in place. Yeah. It changes a little bit depending on which organization you're talking to because each, each, each sub-organization's mission is somewhat different, right? So if you think of our customer and stakeholder engagement organization, the case organization, they are the front door to FAS. They are the ones who are on the ground every day working with our customers, developing early solutions, making sure that they have access to the resources they need. They're going to be fully organized around customer segments. So there may be segments underneath that organization related to the Department of Defense, civilian agencies, intelligence community, and within those departments, it's going to be further breakdown into which specific accounts uh, different account managers are assigned to. Uh, Similarly, if you look at our AAS organization, they are also uh, being reorganized into a customer segment focus. AES is going to take a little bit more time. All of this is not going to get done in the next few weeks. It's going to take uh, at least a year but while all the contracts are transitioned and all the work is uh, uh, routed uh, in a clean way as you move forward. But ultimately, the long-term vision for AES is that, again, they're going to have a team focused on each of the customer segments. So we've looked at all of the data around who our biggest customers are, where the needs are, and forecasted uh, where those needs are going to grow, and then aligned uh, teams, pulled together teams, that uh, are uh, basically bring together a similar amount of work, give or take, that they can tackle uh, together. And they, they naturally fall into certain customer segments. For example, one segment may be focused on the Army, given the Army is our biggest customer. Another segment may be covering uh, U.S. Air Force, Space Force, and the Navy together, because all three of those organizations coming together 
basically is an equivalent amount of work as the U.S. Army team is doing, for example. Another team may be focused on U.S. civilian agencies. We do a lot of work, as you know, with USDA, with HHS, with the Department of Homeland Security. All that work comes together in one, one unit. And again, they're not, they're not individual teams per agency, but those segments can then load balance. So as HHS requirements may come up, those resources from another agency uh, support could be temporarily aligned to the HHS team so that load balancing becomes much more real-time. And similarly, we're going to have an innovation segment. This this segment is going to be working on early entrance to the marketplace, so things like the CIBR program, you know, working with the DIU organization within the Department of Defense or Kessel Run or other Department of Homeland Security, Science and Technology Division. These organizations are constantly looking at new R&D opportunities and creating uh, pathways for new entrants into the marketplace, and our, our innovation segment is going to be working closely with them. Sonny Hashmi is Commissioner of the Federal Acquisition Service at the GSA. Speaking with Federal News Network's Jason Miller. Check out Jason's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm Tom Temin.